Amen. Thank you, Tony. So good morning. Uh, we are continuing in a series this morning uh, through the Lord's Prayer. It's found both in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. We are going to be looking at the version in Luke's Gospel as we go throughout the summer, line by line. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn with us, we'll be in Luke chapter 11. But because the phrases are somewhat short, uh, we are in many cases as we do this thematically going to jump to other, other parts of the scriptures. And so this morning as we consider what it means to pray to God as a father, we're going to look also at Galatians chapter 4. So if you're going to follow in your Bible, you're going to have to be quick on the ready to get from Luke 11 to Galatians 4, so find both those places. But if not, if you'd rather just read along, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it'll be on your screen as well. So let's read uh, together these uh, two short verses in Luke 11 and then moving to Galatians chapter 4, a pretty familiar passage. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. And then the Apostle Paul writes about that reality in Galatians 4 when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son to our hearts crying Abba Father this is the word of the Lord and you say with me if it's going to be there, there it is the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever if you would just pray a brief prayer with me uh, Father we are not here because we are good but because we are yours we thank you for this word give us humble teachable obedient hearts that we might receive what you have revealed, and do what you have commanded. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. We would see Jesus and him only, and in his name we pray. Amen. When you hear the word Father, because of course that's the theme of today, right? Father's Day, and, and Jesus, very, I mean, in one word, uh, says this is how you pray. You pray Father. So when you hear that word Father, I think it would be good for you to take a minute and just and just do a, a diagnostic of your own heart and life, that as you hear that word Father said over and over again in a service like this, what is your emotional reaction? Pay attention. What happens to you inside as you, as you uh, are confronted with that theme and that reality? Is it that your heart just explodes with joy? Is it grief? Is it sadness because of a sense of loss? Is it disappointment? What memories come to mind? What, what is, how does your personal story converge with this theme of the fatherhood of God as you sit in this room this morning because it's going to it's going to affect how you hear and it's going to affect how the spirit might work in your heart whether to confirm or even to heal you so I think it's a good thing for us to consider that this day has a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people based upon what their experience of even that word father was. I say it all the time. Every behaving problem is a believing problem. That's something you ought to probably write down, come back to. It's something I come back to often. Every behaving problem is a believing problem. And that goes for prayer too. Prayer's hard for everybody. But our problem with prayer is not a bad methodology. It is bad theology. And so the solution, as we are asking the Lord to make us a praying church and to, you know, and to make us praying people, the solution is not a new methodology. It's helpful, but it's not the ultimate solution. The solution really is the right theology. And that's where Jesus starts with this one word. When you pray, say, Father. 
He invites us to address God in the same way that he does. Wes Hill has written about this. He says, Christians are those who have the boldness to take on their lips Jesus' address to God. A Christian is a person who has the boldness to to, uh, say of God, to speak of God, to think of God the way that Jesus does here as he just gives us this one word, Father. Prayer begins with knowing God as your Father. And that's the topic for the day on Father's Day. So let's get it out of the way to say that there's a connection between our relationship with our fathers and our relationship with God as Father. Dads, what our children grow up to believe about God is profoundly shaped by what they experience of us. A father images God to his children in an especially powerful way, for good or bad. And so let's just say there's a lot at stake. You with me? There's a lot at stake. And so for some of us to pray father is the most natural thing in the world because of our experience. For others, there's a bunch that we have to overcome. There's all kinds of clutter uh, that makes this very, very hard. But here is, here's what the catechism says. Prayer is drawing near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness. And so we got to fight for that this morning, right? we got to fight uh, using the gospel as the weapon in our own hearts to be able to do that, to draw near to God despite what our experience of fathers in this life might be with confidence in his fatherly goodness. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God to heal your heart right at that place, to begin to believe that to be true of God more and more, no matter what your past experience might be. Jesus wants you to know God as he knows God. He wants you to come to the Father in heaven in prayer, believing that he is a loving father, and as a loving father, he is weak to your asking. Any other dads weak to your kids asking? I am weak to my kids asking. They don't even ask their mother. They just come straight to me. Because she's hard, but they know I'm a softy. I'm so weak to my kids asking for things. Do you believe that to be true of the Father in heaven as well? Praying, praying to God confident in his fatherly care but of course praying to God as father means also praying like little children praying like little children as little children what are children like there's a bunch of them running around here I know that you know a lot of you what kinds of things do children ask for how often do they ask what does no mean to a child I've asked the wrong person Or, I didn't say that the right way. Let me try again. Right? I mean, kids are are full of wonder. They are naive. They don't have a proper sense of what's possible and what's not. Nothing is off limits, right? Kids are selfish. They have no filter. They have no problem just being themselves and expecting you to meet whatever demands they have in the moment. Now, I want you to make sense of, if that's what we know to be true of kids, make sense of Matthew 18, 3, where Jesus says, unless you turn and become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it goes for prayer, too. If we would sum it all up, we could say kids are messy, yet Jesus says that's exactly what he wants. He wants for you and me to come to God like little children, to bring all of our mess, to come as we are, to not try to dress ourselves up spiritually or dress our prayers up in some fancy way, because that's the way the gospel works, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus is you come to God as you are, not as you should be. 
We come and we just bring the mess. And I would say there's so much freedom in being messy. You don't have to do it right. You don't have to say it right. You just have to get started. You just have to show up. That's what we talked about last week. But here's the thing. The ability to do that hinges. The ability to just live in the freedom of that messiness of not having to always do it right, but just bring the real you, bring yourself as you are, not as you should be and all that. The ability to do that hinges on you being able to grasp and then believe and then live from the theological depths of the gospel. And here's what Paul says. If I could summarize that Galatians 4 passage, Paul puts it this way, and many people have tried to, you'll notice I quote John Stott, and then I later quote C.S. Lewis, uh, who both kind kind of put this in their own words. But here's Paul's doctrine in these verses in Galatians chapter 4 to help us as we consider what Jesus means in Luke 11, what it means to pray, Father. Paul says that the Son became a slave so that slaves could become sons. And that is the simplicity of the gospel, that the Son of God became a slave so that we who are slaves could become sons. And then we want to ask, what, is, what, is it, what does it mean to experience that sonship as we pray? Okay? So let's look at this text and see. We're gonna, and we're really going to talk about some theology here because this is the theolo- you got you got to grasp the theological depths of this. So first, I want you to see that the first thing Paul says in verse 4 there is that, God, that the God's son became a slave. Verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And here we're really confronted with the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. So two seminal doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation. So let's talk about the Trinity first, because, of course, any talk of addressing God as Father in prayer has to begin with the Trinity. God is three in one. He is God the Father. Finish it with me. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so these three persons, one God. There is a certain reserve in the Old Testament about the metaphor of God as Father. It occurs only 15 times in the entire Old Testament scriptures. But once you get to the New Testament, the, the reserve is gone. If you were to tally up how many times Jesus refers to God as Father, it would be 65 times by the time you finish the Gospel of Luke, 170 times by the time you finish the Gospel of John. 15 times in all of the Old Testament, 170 times by the time you finish the four Gospels. And so you could say this is the supreme revelation of God and the coming of Jesus, that God is Father. From all and to all eternity, God is one, but not solitary. He exists in and as relationship. The Father has a son who he begets, to use the creedal language from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But this begetting, this birthing, is eternal, which means there was never a time when the son was not. This is deep theology. I told you, you got to grasp the depths, right? Wesley Hill says, before and beyond all world... Our time-bound language reaches its limits here. He says, God is born of God, but in such a way that there is only one God. God has never not been the Father. Jesus has never not been the Son. And their mutual love, the Spirit, has never begun or ever ceased to bind them together in unbreakable communion. This is the mystery of the Trinity. Beyond understanding, but clearly revealed in the Scriptures, Jesus is the only begotten do you know the old translations, like the King James Version, if you grew up with that, that he's the only begotten son or the one and only son of the Father in the newer translations? Jesus enjoys a unique and eternal place 
in God's heart, and yet he desires to share all that is his with us. Isn't that amazing? And when he says, pray, Father, he says, I'm inviting you into the same relationship with God. Now, how does he do that? Well, now we come to the doctrine of the incarnation. See, it leads to the second doctrine, the incarnation. And what we learn here is that Jesus came to earth to make God known as Father so that the love the Father eternally had for the Son might also be in all those who believe in him. Father and Son so delight in one another that they desire to share that love with all that they have made. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, you know this verse, that he gave his only Son. Michael Reeves goes deeper, and I like the way he puts it. He says, Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for his Son. That's so deep, but so good. And what it means is that all that God does to save us is because he is a Father. Not just to us, but first to Jesus. The Trinity, right? But it leads to the incarnation because it says here, verse 4, look there again, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, there's, there was a plan. There was always a plan. From before God created time, he created a plan. And part of that plan was that there would be a moment where he would enter into time. And Paul says, when that fullness of time came, here's what happened. God sent forth his son born of a woman. That is being human, being made human. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about that, right? About the fact that Jesus, the eternal son of God, became a man. Hebrews, for example, says that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. And again, he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So those verses and others make clear that Jesus shared our humanity. He became like us, which means he got hangry. Right? He had bad breath. He was subject to all the same physical and emotional weaknesses that we are. Even the same spiritual temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to battle lust and greed and self-pity. It goes on, though. It says, born of a woman, but also born under law. Do you see that? In other words, he came obligated to the very same obedience to God that we are, liable to the demands of the Mosaic law, to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and to love his neighbor as himself, as we could sum it up, and to be liable to the same punishment, death and hell upon failure. This son, in other words, made himself a slave. He came, put aside his sonship, and lived under the obligations to the law. Do this, don't do this, do this. Not this, but it's more than that. Jesus took upon himself our law obligation. He put himself in our place. He, he came alongside of us as a slave, as a slave himself, under the law. He substituted himself for us. He lived under that law for us. As John Stott says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Do you remember the scene in uh, the Gospels where Jesus is baptized is towards the beginning of the Gospels. John the Baptist is baptizing the crowds as a sign of their repentance uh, and their 
preparing for the coming of Messiah, and Jesus, Messiah, comes to be baptized. The problem is, is Jesus had nothing to repent of. He had no sin. He, he, he didn't need to be baptized by John's baptism. And John rightly discerns this, and he refuses at first to baptize Jesus until Jesus says, no, 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 let it be so. It has to be this way, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus became like us. He took upon himself our human weakness. He lived under the law so that he could fulfill righteousness for us. He was tempted in every way, no exceptions, as we are, yet was without sin so that he could accomplish a perfect record against sin and then give it to us as a gift. This is the basic gospel message. So if your faith is in Jesus, if you're trusting in his record of obedience and not your own, then his righteousness is your righteousness. Isn't that good news? And it's what Paul goes on to describe. What happens when that reality comes into your life? Well, this is what Paul goes on to say. He says that the Son of God became a slave, and all those who believe in that work that he's done, those, those that were slaves, now become sons. The Son of God became a slave so that slaves, you and me, could become sons because it says God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And here are two more doctrines. You see the doctrines of depravity and adoption. So we have Trinity and incarnation. This is a doctrinal sermon. You guys okay? We okay? We doing all right? Can you hang with it? Trinity, Trinity, incarnation, depravity, and adoption. Because let's see what it says about us here. He is the son, but we are naturally slaves. We are held hostage by a law-driven, works-based religious mindset. We're told here that we are those under the law. And that phrase, as the Bible uses, it means something both objectively and subjectively. Objectively, it means that every one of us born into this world is under the obligation to obey God's law in every part. So, you know the law, right? Do not murder. Let's use that one. But is it just that or is it more than that? I mean, Jesus kind of expands on that, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, where he says, no, no, it's not just do not murder. Jesus says if you live in anger, anger if you refuse to forgive, if you're self-righteous and condescending, then you're just as liable to judgment as if you, you, know, as if you murdered. You've broken God's law. And so as you start to unpack this, immediately you begin to see a couple of things. First, the scope of God's commands that go way beyond just some external you know, conformity to a rule. And secondly, our absolute inability to obey. I mean, that's the objective part to being under law. You live as if righteousness comes through obeying the law, but no matter how hard you try, no, no matter how much effort you put in, you're, you're constantly falling short. And that objective reality does something subjectively in your life. It means you're relying on being good to save you. You're trusting in your own ability to obey God's rules, or at least to do it better than everybody else, as they say, you don't have to, if a bear's chasing you, you don't have to run fast, you just have to run faster than whoever's with you, right? But here's the thing, as you're doing this, your conscience, that little voice inside of you, the, the, the seed of divinity that God has placed in your heart, in the very center of your being, your conscience knows, it's telling you all the time, no matter how good you are, it's not good enough. And so 
being under law, it's all based upon your performance and your moral record and so forth. But then the conscience is there saying, keep trying, keep trying. You're not there yet. You haven't done enough. And so you live in this reality with a deep sense of insecurity about your standing with God. This is true of so many religious people. It was true of the entire kind of church structure that I grew up in as a kid of people who came to church every week and who did all the right things and were trying their best to be good moral people. But underneath all of that, there was this deep insecurity and fear and pride. And so you live with this deep insecurity about where you really are with God and you relate to him, not as a beloved child, but as if, as if you are in fact a servant. Like the prodigal son, you remember when he came back from blowing it so bad? Remember what he said to his father when his father ran to meet him? Don't treat me as a son. I'm not worthy to be called a son. Make me a servant. Make me a slave. Let me pay my way back into the family. And that's what a lot of us are doing. Because even though we're inside of Christianity, we're still under law in some significant ways. Now, the law is not the solution to sin. It is an instrument of sin. Hear me, the law does not help you against sin. The law helps sin against you. So Christianity isn't getting religion. It's getting out from under the law and being under grace instead. And that's what Paul says happens here because we come not just to depravity, but we see also the doctrine of adoption. He says, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The text says that Jesus redeems those. He can set you free from that experience, both objectively and subjectively, of being under the law. Because if your faith is in Jesus' obedience, and if your confidence with God comes from his record and not your record, then you're freed. Then you can live free from all the liability and penalty and debt of being under law. You're freed from that law-driven, works-based mindset that I tried to describe. And so there's nothing that you can possibly do to improve on what Jesus has done for you. And all of it is yours by faith. Here's what the Bible says of you. If you've believed, you're no longer a slave. You have a whole new status with God as a son, as a beloved child. Paul's writing about something that happened in the Roman world here, about a, a childless, wealthy man who could take on one of his servants and adopt him and make him his heir. And here's what the Bible's teaching us. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become an adopted child of God. Okay, you're not as excited about that as you should be. I just want, just, no, I'm, it's, it's not about me. I'm just telling you. I want you to see your own heart there. That should be the best news that you've heard all week. It doesn't mean you have to like, woo, and clap and cheer. I mean, you can. Jenny's going to always do that, okay? It doesn't mean you have to do that, but I just want, did you feel how dead in the room it was there? And I just want you to see how hard our hearts are toward, but you don't believe it. That's why you didn't react differently than you did right there, Right? This doctrine of adoption is so important. We talk a lot about justification. We say the verdict is in, that we're righteous in God's sight because of Jesus. Isn't that all? That's such great news, isn't it? But if you're not careful, it can become too legal and forensic. It can be all head and no heart. But this doctrine, adoption, is all heart. It says we're not just righteous, we're beloved. 
We're cherished. We're wanted. We had no family, no future. And then God came to us even in our sin and made us his own and made us part of his family. I mean, it's just, you just read it and you're like, that, I, I, don't, I can't even make sense of that. C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Again, and it means something objectively and subjectively both. Objectively, if you are in Christ, you have all of the rights and privileges of a son. Let me say that differently. If you're in Christ, you have all of the rights and privileges of the son. God now treats you as if you had done everything that Jesus has done. And so what Jesus said in John, I mean, I, I read it this morning, and it's just, it is like, you know, the old wily e. Coyote when his head explodes or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's that. John, he says this in John, he who loves me, this is, we read it, John 14, 21, he who loves me will be loved by the Father and I will love him. Do you know that means if your faith is in Jesus, you are loved by the persons of the Trinity as if you are one of their own. Now, subjectively, subjectively, there's a huge difference between how it feels to be a slave, or I'm going to use the analogy of an orphan. A slave and an orphan, kind of similar twin realities. There's a big difference. There's a huge difference between how it feels to be a slave or an orphan and how it feels to be a son. But look at what Paul says here in Galatians 4, 6. You are no longer a slave, but a son. Let me just try to tease this out for you. I have some resources I could give you if you want to like dig into this a little bit further, but an orphan, and, and you know, like an orphan, like that slavery orphan mindset, an orphan often feels alone and afraid and insecure, but a son knows he's loved, and he has a growing assurance and confidence in the father's presence and care. An orphan typically feels abandoned and unworthy. There's, the, there's this condemning heart that's just getting the best of him. A son, a son feels loved and forgiven and wanted. An orphan struggles to admit failure because weakness is the enemy, because all of his confidence comes from being competent and sufficient and all by himself. But a son can admit it when he messes up because he's learned the lesson that God's love is grace. An orphan struggles to trust. He locks his heart up to keep from being hurt again because he's been so hurt in the past. A son is a person who can risk relationally because he already has all of the love that he needs. An orphan says, if it's going to be, it's up to me. That's the motto of the orphan mindset. If it's going to be, it's up to me. A son is able to say, no, I have a father. And he's taking care of everything. And here's what Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And he wants that not just to become objectively true for you, but also subjectively true in the innermost parts of your heart. Now, how does that happen? It happens through prayer. Okay, what does this have to do with prayer? Because that's where the text leads. That's where the thought that, that, that Paul's working on in the text, because look at the very next verse. He says, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So he goes right to prayer, okay? Do you see that? Do you see how the movement, the, there's a connection here between you experiencing your sonship and the way that works in prayer. Uh, now, I got to tell you a story, and I got I to let you know up front, 
there's no way I get through this without absolutely just breaking down. So pray for me. Um, but Russell Moore, who was for a long time the head of the ERLC for the Southern Baptist Convention, has written about the adoption of his two sons from an orphanage in Russia. Uh, and it's a really powerful story. He told about his wife, and you know, when, when you adopt internationally, you have to go and spend some time in the country. And so he talked about going to Russia, visiting the orphanage where these boys were that they were going to adopt. And here's what he said. He said, the creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife, Maria, and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down the hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor or the stench. The horror was the quiet of it all. And he and his wife began to reflect on the contrast between the quiet of the Russian orphanage and the buzz of the nursery at their church on Sunday mornings, and they realized the terrible truth that those Russian children did not cry because as infants they had learned to stop crying when no one ever responded to their calls. They had been so profoundly abandoned and left to themselves that they learned to that it did no good to call for food or for comfort or for love. Because for those kids, there literally was no one there to hear them. And so they stopped. And they met the two boys that would become their sons. And they spent time with them. And he tells the story. They read them books and they visited them a number of times. And the boys would smile and dance up and down in their cribs. But still, over the number of days and weeks, no sound, no voice. He said every day they walked into silence and left in silence. And it was just, it just was so, it was just such a, a hard thing. But then he says, but then on the last day of the trip, they had to tell the boys goodbye before returning home to the U.S. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine? You're going to adopt these two boys and you have to come all the way back because that's what the law required. The paperwork had to go through. And as they were visiting with those boys for the last time, they hugged them and kissed them. And they laid them in their cribs and they walked out of the room in absolute silence, and began to walk down the hall as they had always done. And then I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna um, um, quote him. And then he said, and then, well, he said, as we left, Maria shook with tears. He said, and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell because it seemed he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard. And on some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now, and I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard that yell. Little Maxim's scream changed everything. More, I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork, it was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. And it was the moment it was also the moment that I became a father. Now when Jesus says, God has sent the spirit into our hearts to cry, Abba, he means that God intends for the reality of our adoption to be something more than just a doctrine we believe, that it would be an experiential truth in our lives, that the spirit is sent to apply the truth of our adoption to our hearts, to assure us of God's love and welcome and to fill us with confidence and joy and to, and to make us absolutely certain that there is someone who hears us so that we would begin to cry out.
says we cry out. You see that? That word describes little Maxim's scream in the orphanage. Now, it's not the way we typically pray. We're much more refined than that, aren't we? It says we cry, Abba. What a great word. It means intimacy and familiarity and simplicity. And it all begins with a simple word, Father. Driven home to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I wonder, have you lost your voice? And would God heal us this morning? N.T. Wright, channeling C.S. Lewis, he wrote that the simple prayer, Father, is not only the beginning of all good praying, it is also the finish line. He said at the end of all of our striving and prayer, we will arrive where we started and we will know the place for the first time. That is, that it is true that as soon as somebody becomes a Christian, he or she can and must say, Father. Even so, it will be a lifetime of growth and maturity to understand and resonate with what that simple address really means. In other words, we never stop praying, Father, but as we do, as we find our voice, because the Spirit convinces us that the gospel is true and that there is somebody who is listening and we can cry out to him, as we do, as we pray, as we pray the simple prayer, Father, we move deeper and deeper into the spiritual experience of what we're praying. J.F. Packer said, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. And if you want to judge how well a person is doing that, if you want to judge how well a person is doing it, making much of having God as his father, look at his prayers. With prayer, methodology is important, but theology matters most. Right? But you don't, you don't get the right theology, and then once it's all settled in your heart and you have mastery of these things, then pray. You get the right theology by praying. I would say to you, all prayer is simply learning to say, Father, over and over again, until you believe it to be true. And so we say with the hymn writer this morning, as he exclaims the truth of our adoption, by favor adopted thy sons we appear And led by the Spirit, we boldly draw near. In Jesus, beloved and washed in his blood, with hope we adore at the footstool of God. Let's do that together for a few minutes, can we? As we just pray to the God, the Father, this morning in response to this word. I'm just going to give you a moment. And here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would help you find your voice. I wonder if you've lost your voice like those children in that orphanage and that you could find it this morning to simply, in this moment, maybe, maybe you don't get any further than just to say, Father. And so, Father, thank you that you offer to come to us this morning to heal our hearts of whatever wounds or disappointments or losses we may have experienced for the ways that we have indeed lost our voice. We've given up hope. We've stopped believing that there's anyone listening. We've just decided to do it all on our own, which is why so often we are exhausted and overwhelmed and on the verge of a complete collapse. And why, as we confess, we are often prayerless. And instead self-sufficient 
and, and, uh, and trusting in our own strength, our own smarts, our own creativity, our ability to work out the problems in our lives. And again, it just leaves us depleted and overwhelmed and on the verge of burnout. And so I pray that as we sit with this truth here this morning, that the Spirit would, that you would send the Spirit into our hearts. As you say here, that the Son was sent and became a slave so that we who are slaves could become sons, but then the Spirit was sent to make all of that real, to, to, um, to apply all of that to our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us right now in this moment? Start our, our dead hearts beating again. Open our lips that we might find our voice to cry out to you. And as we do so, warm our hearts with the thought of your fatherly care for us. This is what we pray. And then set our feet to the work of following you. To take up your crosses, we're going to sing now. But, but it's the phrase, think what, what uh, father's smiles are thine. Right there, we do it all knowing that because of Jesus, we live underneath your smile. So we follow you, but we do so as an act of gratitude and love for all that you've shown to us. Oh, what a good, good father you are. So help us be the sons that you desire us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I sit down and think about what I wanna say. Here's, here's what I would say. We, 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 when we think about prayer, we rush to the thing where we just start to ask God for the things that we need. But I love the line in that song that says, soul then know thy full salvation. In some sense, all prayer is, before you even get to asking God about things, is to get your heart in a place to where that is becoming more and more true of you. Where you, because of your time with the Father, your soul, the, the, your full salvation is kind of seeping down into the reality of your soul. Right? You go to prayer so that you can live from that place. And that's what the promise of this benediction is, is that um, whatever you meet with this week, God promises to be with you in it. He doesn't hold out his presence and favor to you just to see kind of how you do. He sends you with the preemptive promise that no matter which you shows up tomorrow, the you that's blowing it or the you that's killing it, that he'll be there with you. And he invites you to come to him and know him as a father. And as you do, that, that your soul would begin to know your full salvation. And that would propel a life of mission like that song says. So receive this benediction as he calls us to go and live just that life of mission. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Happy Father's Day. Enjoy your fathers. Go in peace. Amen.